Well, um, there's probably more we could get out of Genesis chapter 3, but I think that we did pretty well with what we did in the last two times we met on that. Um, And so the Lord finished up by putting a flaming sword at the east gate of the garden or the eastern part of the Garden of Eden and kicked out Adam and Eve, put a sword there so they couldn't go back and taste of that tree and take of that tree of life and live in their state for eternity. Praise the Lord. But they were out now, and so they're camped probably not that far away uh, based on how things kind of read in chapter 4. So if you'd like, I'm going to just read through all of chapter 4, and then we'll just kind of come back and uh, look things over a little bit. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of a fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, well then sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. And now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, Your punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. Shall I be hidden from your face? Or and I shall be hidden from your face. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anybody who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out of from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch he was born Irad, and to Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methusael, and Methusael begot Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jebal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the flute, or play the harp and the flute. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and in iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Well, then Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. 
wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And if Cain be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seven seventy-seven fold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed to me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. His name was Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So Genesis chapter 4, I think, tonight, and uh, maybe not much past verse 24. But to set the context, we've been going through Genesis, and and, um, they settled east of the Garden of Eden. And it appears that Cain went further east after that. But Adam and Eve, um, Adam knew his wife. The meaning is obvious because of the result. Um, At the birth of Cain, there were now only three persons on the earth. Uh, Verse 2, at the birth of Abel, likely at this point, only four people were on the earth. Since it says uh, she bore again. But then in verse 3, it says, in the process of time, and Cain and Abel sacrificed to the Lord. So in setting the context, it doesn't uh, say how old Adam and Eve were, and it doesn't say when Cain and Abel were born, and it doesn't say how old Abel was when Cain murdered him. There is no mention of Abel having any descendants. Um, So at the birth of Seth... Adam and Eve, it says, were though 130 years um, at, uh, in the next chapter. But um, in Genesis 1.28, uh, it said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And so after the birth of Abel is when Eve may have begun to have daughters. Um, Cain may have chosen one for his wife, most likely. But as it does not say when Cain had a wife. It could have been after Seth had grown and had, you know, kids. Um, then maybe Seth would have had to marry one of his sisters. And Cain found one of Seth's daughters while wandering around. That's a lot less likely. Um, either way, Cain or Seth both married, or one of them at least married a sister or a niece. And this stumbles some believers. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. First of all, um, this is God's account of creation. This is what he said happened. And uh, it's also the dawn of, of human civilization. He doesn't say anything about uh, this being breaking the law. It doesn't say anything about it being incest. Um, at the beginning, there was no commandment about that. A few weeks back, we were going through um, Genesis uh, 2 or 3. And we did the uh, count, or actually it was the end of Genesis 2, we were talking about how Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. And, and so we went and contrasted that with Leviticus 18. And that's where the law of Moses describes these things and the shamefulness of them, um, the wickedness of them. But that was about uh, 2,500 years later from Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Um, not to mention there was a flood somewhere around uh, 1,500 years after Adam, or even 1,000 years, if you would, before the law of Moses when we read it in Leviticus. And some believe that the corruption of DNA through 
sin in the world and just uh, one generation to the next, DNA suffers a little bit of corruption, a little bit of uh, mutation, along with the wickedness and the violence. That was the reason for the flood. And we'll get into that if and when we get to that um, with the, uh, the flood and the way the world was. But at the very least, we know that there was, the earth was filled with wickedness at the time of the flood. If you still seem to find a stumbling block about you know, Cain or Seth marrying their sister, um, you might find help with answers in Genesis, uh, the Institute for Creation Research with Ken Ham, and now uh, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. I don't know if you guys saw, uh, if any of you visited to um, the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Uh, Dr. Nathaniel T. Jensen has a Harvard Ph.D. in biology and more. He, I think he spent quite a few years in Wisconsin, or at least a few. Um, and I can't remember, Lakeside or one of those colleges. His uh, DNA research shows why Adam and Eve being the first humans and created in God's image and likeness, didn't have a single problem with their DNA. There was no corruption. There were no mutations at the time that they were created. So therefore, what we know today about the dangers of incest and the corruptions and the mutations of DNA would not have applied back then. It would not have been an issue. All that just to say, Cain or Seth married their sister, and it was just fine. Um, some speculate that uh, God created out of the earth more women so that they could have wives. But then there's a big problem about where they created in his image, were they uh, not with, or with, were they without sin, had they been a part of the fall. So it's actually kind of ridiculous and more confusing to bring it up than anything. But Cain, the word means acquire, means I have gotten. And Eve says that, I have gotten. But she says, uh, from the Lord. And the word from the Lord there, in the Lord. And what, he's, what she's saying, what she named him, was the hope that this was the seed that was going to crush the head of the serpent. And Abel means vanity. Same vanity, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all things you know, are vanity. At the time of Abel's birth, well, Eve expected Cain to be the one that would crush the head of the serpent. And so Abel comes along and she just names him Vanity since her hopes were on, were on Cain at the time. Uh, didn't mean anything other than that. Um, and again, this is what she named him and they always named for a reason. And so it's a little bit of speculation what her motives were about naming him uh, Abel, but that seems to fit with what um, she expected from um, chapter 3. So... Um, Abel comes along. Uh, Cain, like Adam, worked the cursed ground. Abel tended the sheep. Inferior to Cain's more important work of his father, Adam. Remember, Adam was sent out to uh, you know, till the fields by the sweat of his brow. And he had to, in order to have food, in order to have crops, he had to work. In verse 3 through 5, in uh, chapter 4. Again, it says, but of the fruit of the tree, or oh, wrong chapter. Uh, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Plain and simple. Just an offering, just the fruit of the ground. 
Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, even off the bat here, we've got to start a list. And on, take your notebook and you draw a line right down the middle and you put a contrast. Everything that's said about Cain, everything that's said about Abel. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. The ground was cursed. And Abel was subduing cre- creation. Remember, he, God commanded Adam and Eve, subdue creation. These are the animals I created for you. Subdue them. Both brought an offering of, before the Lord, both Cain and Abel. Now, Cain brought fruit of the ground. That's it. Now, Abel brought the firstborn of the flock, the best, the first, the strongest, and along with the fat. Now, Abel's was respected. And that word respect simply means looked at, gazed upon. So God looked at it. He, looked, he, he didn't turn away from it. As opposed to Cain, it said it was not respected by God. And it simply means he didn't even look at it. It was not there. He, he wouldn't look at it because it wasn't what it was supposed to be. And the word very angry there for Cain is really the word burn, to be furious, to be incensed. And his countenance fell, meaning he was face down, face to the ground. If you turn with me to Hebrews 11, what we're doing is we're making that list contrasting Cain and Abel. Because there's a question, what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice and what was right with Abel's sacrifice? And, um, you know, you look at it at face value and you go, well, gee, what was wrong with that? I mean, why, why was Cain's not accepted? Why wouldn't he even look at it? Hebrews 11, we're just going to read 1 through 7. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony, and by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, even though he was dead, it still speaks, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And it was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But verse 6 is important for us in 7. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So by faith Noah, being divinely warned of these things, yet not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and, beca- and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. The reason we read 7 is because there is a righteousness that comes from faith, which is according to faith. Faith, by definition, is simply the conviction of truth, about anything, and or belief. But it's the type of conviction that will sit down in the chair trusting it's going to hold it up. It's the kind of the conviction that comes from jumping out of an airplane with the parachute, knowing that that parachute is going to hold you. And um, you're putting your faith because you're risking everything to do it. And so 
Faith, in verse 1, though, is defined as assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things that are not seen. You don't get to see the parachute. You don't get to see the chair, but you're sitting down with faith. Now, verse 2, good testimony that these elders had is called, uh, uh, it's just simply good and acceptable. Kind of like what the Lord did with, with Abel. It was an acceptable sacrifice. And then verse 4, he says it's better than Cain's. And it's, he says it's excellent. And that word excellent means greater than, uh, more than, or superior to. And through this, he obtained a testimony. And what does he say? You know, the Lord said, I accept this. That was a testimony. God said, God accepted that, that sacrifice. That established a testimony, undeniable, and that, that he was righteous, we see in, in Hebrews. Ad, uh, Abel was righteous by what he sacrificed, and Cain was not. Now, he offered it in faith. What was Abel's faith in? Well, verse 6 in Hebrews kind of is why we read that. That's what Hebrews 6 tells us about, about Abel. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So if it pleased the Lord, that means that Abel had faith. And for he who comes to God, both were coming to God with their sacrifices, he must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, offered in faith, pleasing to God, seeking God, what does this imply about Cain if it was not accepted? You know, unaccepted sacrifice, unaccepted gift, not done in faith, not righteous. It con- you know, the contrast of Cain's offering, it was just some fruit off the ground. It wasn't the first fruits. It wasn't the, the best. It wasn't before anything else. It wasn't the beginnings of, of tithing or anything like that. But the contrast is Abel gave his first fruits, gave the best of the fat and the savor and the flavor. And faith is the conviction of things unseen. So what was Abel putting his faith in? What was unseen that Abel had faith in? Why were Cain and Abel offering sacrifices anyway? We didn't read about anything like that prior, except for one thing. God shed innocent blood, or just the blood of an animal that didn't do wrong to nobody, but just an animal, to clothe Adam and Eve, or to cover Adam and Eve, to cover their nakedness. Uh, they were hiding. They were ashamed uh, of their sin. And uh, apparently God had indicated, though, that from this time on, after he had shed blood and had to kill an animal to cover them with the skins, that they would continue to sacrifice, that they at least remember this. It's not like once the clothes wore out, they just didn't wear clothes anymore. There was this ongoing thing. Cain and Abel were born and probably running around you know, until they needed clothes and didn't know the difference, but then they grow up and they start realizing, well, there's something going on. We have to have clothes. There's a shame. There's something that they need to understand. Adam and Eve told them the story. Everything was passed down. And so they knew that this was something that the Lord had asked them to do and that the Lord clothed them with. And so these, these, these sacrifices were, if not instituted, they were ordained. Or Otherwise, why would Cain and Abel be doing this thing? Abel didn't seem to care what he brought. Why would he bother bringing anything? 
Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Well, Cain offered the work of his hands from the cursed ground, which needed sweat and toil to produce. It could never cover his sin because blood was not shed, according to Romans, or I'm, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9.22. Abel, on the other hand, often the very, offered the very life of the sheep in faith that God would accept that life of a sheep in place of his own life, temporarily, but that was the offering. That's what was done for Adam and Eve in the garden to cover their shame, to cover their sin. And so that's what Abel offered. He shed blood. And you know that uh, his mother, Eve, would have certainly been telling him these things. Cain did not respect the word of God regarding the seed of the woman. And therefore, he didn't regard the fact that there needed to be a covering. Probably didn't regard the fact that he was a sinner because isn't that the way it is? You know, until you tell somebody their sins or that they are a sinner and they have conviction until you show them how they've broken the law. And that's, I love that about Ray Comfort. If any of you have not seen it, most of these faces are familiar, but I've said it before. You go on the internet and you, YouTube and you can look at Ray Comfort. And the first thing he starts with is with the law. He starts to take him through the Ten Commandments. Are, you know, have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? Well, yeah. Have you ever stolen anything? What do you call a, th- a person who steals? A thief. So you're a, a blaspheming thief. What do you call somebody who looks at a person with lust? An adulterer. So you're a, you're a blaspheming, thieving, adulteress. And, and uh, so at heart, actually, is the way the Lord puts it. But, so he gives them the law. He gives them the, the conviction, the ability for conviction. They have to say it out loud because he asks them, what do you call somebody who does that? They have to say about themselves that they're a thief. And it begins to sink in. And then he doesn't that bother you? Well, I guess. Well, how are you going to pay for that? And so he takes him through the gospel. And clearly Cain did not have regard for that. He didn't have regard for the fact that he was a sinner. And he didn't have regard for the fact that there needed to be a, a, a sacrifice. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Well, so how does this apply to us? Faith is the finished work, is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and not the sweat and the toil of our brow and not our own works of righteousness. You know, only one of these is acceptable to God. And um, we know that's what the Lord did for us and took uh, the wages of our sin and the sin of the worlds upon himself. And you know, as believers, it may not seem that big of a deal. We're kind of preaching to the choir, but are we? How often do we turn around after something goes wrong, or maybe a few weeks or months or whatever years go by where we're getting apathetic, where we're just getting into our lives and just going our day-to-day, and we kind of forget about the fact that, that, you know, all these things that we have are to his glory and honor, and not because of the work of our own, and something happens, all of a sudden we're calling on the Lord and we're begging and we, we forget where we came from. We forget that, that we needed to come to him and his righteousness and we start to think, well, we've got to do something. We've got to clean up our act. We've got to get our lives together. We've got to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. And even as believers, you can get into that trap. But the truth is, at that point, from the minute you turn your heart toward the Lord 
and start, no matter how far off course you've sailed, how far out to sea, that puts you right back on course because from that point you're heading towards the Lord. And you need to do so as a, a penitent sinner, not somebody who's trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And then he takes you. Then he picks you up, dusts you off, and sets you on the path. So just as Jesus took the wages for our sin, you know, he, and he died on the cross and in our place, in the world's place, one time for all. It's going back to Genesis Verses 4 through 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? He asked Cain why he's angry, but he implying, you know, because God knows, knows top to bottom, he knows everything, there's nothing hidden from him, but he's, it's, he's implying that God knows Cain's fury is towards Abel. And, you know, otherwise, why be angry? Is he mad at God? I mean, he's not even sure he needs to be doing sacrifices. And so he's, he's implying that Cain ought to know this. In verses 7, it says, If you do well, you will not be, or if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. Now this kind of goes back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? It says, don't have this tree. But they see it, and then there's temptation, and they have a choice. It's not, uh, again, another evidence here with Cain in this choice, if he does well. It's not Calvinism. Um, He shows Cain there's a choice to do well or not do well. If he does not do well, then sin is ready, he says. But Cain needs to rule over it. Isn't that interesting? Just like Adam and the tree. He needs to make that choice and rule over that temptation, rule over that sin rather than let it rule over him. You know, whoever you serve, that's who you're a slave to. And well, you may not think of it even as believers, but you start following after sin and yielding your life to sin, you'll become a slave to it. It takes you down, it takes down the people around you, and eventually, you know, you get so far down that you end up turning, but there you are sitting now at a different place, and he will get you back on track. But there'll be, there's always consequences. You know, He paid for the sin, but in this life, you have to still endure the consequences. You can't sin, go rob a bank, get caught, and repent, and then you get to go free. You'll end up going to jail, and there will be consequences in this life. Um, so Cain, verse 8, did not do well. Instead, it says he told Abel. Now, whatever he told him, doesn't say, but he says he told him either that God didn't accept his sacrifice, you know, how come he accepted yours, or maybe how furious he was with him. Maybe he just went up to him and just was, you know, letting loose on him. Whatever the conversation was, that didn't help Cain overcome his sin. It didn't help him master over that sin that was crouching at the door. And so when motive met opportunity, he slew his brother out in the field. In verse 9, God asks Cain about his brother. Now, God knew. It's not a question about finding out. It's a question about letting Cain say what he did. And uh, just like us, you know, when we repent, we confess. It's not because God doesn't already know. In fact, he says before we even think what to pray or what to ask, he already knows 
what we want. And, but uh, whatever the conversation was, it didn't help Cain. And God asked Cain uh, with, with his brother, but God asked Cain, um, you know, where's your brother? You know, at first, um, his response is just an overt, outright lie. I don't know. I don't know where Abel's at. It's the first overt, outright lie in the Bible. You know, when Adam and Eve were, you know, con- uh, caught, if you will, and they come out hiding, you know, they played the blame game uh, and all, but they didn't just come right out and lie overtly with no regard for the Lord. They were, they were in fear. They were ashamed. Um, we have this first outright lie. And it's for the, from the first man that was ever born to sinful parents in the Bible. He says, I don't know. Well, that's a lie. Then we have the first outright defiance towards God. He goes, what are you asking me for? Am I, I don't care about Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? When really he knew that Abel had been, his sacrifice had been more acceptable to God. And um, so Abel was doing what Adam and he had done for covering. Um, Abel was honoring God's word. Cain denies any wrongdoing. And was Cain required to be his brother's keeper? And if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. You know, he never saw it in Genesis that, you know, supposedly Cain was to be his brother's keeper. But in fact, they were. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You know, the way of Cain, um, we'll talk about that, but the wicked one questioned God's word with Eve. And Cain had no regard for that. He knew the stories. And Cain basically just didn't have any regard for God's word when he realized, you know, you can do that. You can defy God. You can go against the Lord. Now, Abel's works, it says in, in 1 John, that his works were righteous and Cain's were evil. And as an example, John uses this story to tell us for ourselves why the world hates us. And as an example to us that the love of the brethren is how we have eternal life. You know, when we point and shine a light on the world, even if we just decide not to laugh at the, at the you know, less than edifying jokes being passed around at work, or they're taking the name of the Lord in vain, and you say, do you know who that really is, that you're taking his name in vain? There's a lot of power in that name. You're just whipping it out there. And, what? You know, and you do that enough, and people know you enough, and they still want to keep on partying with their buddies. They're going to start to hate you. They're going to mock you, make fun of you, try and get rid of you, try and get you fired, whatever the case may be. 
but it's not going to be comfortable. And it's because there's a hatred. If you look at Jude verse 11, a couple pages to your right, if not just one page to your right, it says, woe to them, and he's talking about the apostates that are coming and all. Um, it's, it's a good study in Jude, but just for verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. So Cain has a way. Uh, they ran greedily in the air of Balaam. Balaam had a way. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. But it talks about Cain having a way. And the way of Cain is what so far that we know? He's lying. He has disregard for the word of God. He's a brutal murderer of those that shine light on his sin. You know, whatever Cain, uh, Abel's sacrifice, you know, whatever Cain saw and however he knew that, that uh, Abel's was accepted, it just shined a light on his sacrifice not being accepted. And so like many today, even among true believers, there are those that still bring their own righteousness like we talked about. And they'll despise any brother or sister that's just resting in God's grace because they might have something that they feel they've got to be doing. And then they're not strong enough to do it and they're trying to bring it up on their own strength. And it gets to the point where they're burnt out and they get weary and pretty soon it's like, can't you help me with this? The Lord wants you to do it. How are you doing this? How can you be resting in grace when you're supposed to be helping me get this thing done? I've, we've seen people that come and they will point the finger and say, how can you know God if you're letting this happen here or letting that happen there? Maybe God's got you doing something somewhere in your gifts and in your abilities that God gave you. It doesn't have anything to do with what they want help with. And yet they feel like it's the one thing, it's the most important thing, and they've grown weary at it. Therefore, they've got to start pointing the finger and making people feel guilty. Even Mary and Martha, you know, the Lord told uh, Mary, you know, Mary was, or Martha was struggling. You know, Lord, can Mary help me out with what's going on here? Well, Martha, Mary chose the thing to sit at my feet and take in the word and, uh, you know, abide in me. You'll bear much fruit. You'll enter into rest. And, uh, the work has been done regarding salvation and any righteousness we're ever going to have. All we've got to do is walk in what he's given us to do. So even Mary and Martha, even in the church, there are those that would just as soon operate in the strength of their own righteousness and their own strength rather than in that grace and in the strength that the Holy Spirit works in us. Now verse 10, back in Genesis, says that the blood cries out for justice. And if we... And he said, What have you done to Cain? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, throughout Scripture, uh, beginning... Well, Leviticus 17 says, The life is in the blood. And throughout Scripture, the spilling of blood is, you know, requires justice. Um... It's interesting because when you read about the kingdom, it talks about flesh and bone, but not blood. So instead of the, the blood drive that we have in this life, it's a spirit drive that we have in our new bodies. And, um, but the word says that the life is in the blood. And uh, to spill blood, to take a life, requires justice. And um, the fact that God brings justice for Abel tells us that he is still the God of the living, 
Remember when he, in Matthew 22, he says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the, uh, is God the God of the dead? Or let me say it, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You know, and so Abel also had died. His blood was calling out to, to God from, from the ground. Not because there was anything going on there with, with some difference between just the natural man made out of dust and the ground or anything like that, but the, the, there's more to a man than blood. There's more to a, a man or woman than blood or bones or flesh and skin, and it's always going to be the life that's in, it's the spirit that's going to have the life and the soul that's going to have the life. God's the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Abel. And it's just testified there in Genesis by the fact that the blood cries out to him for justice. Verses 11 through 14, kind of interesting. So now you're cursed from the earth. The very ground that he was tilling, that he needed to till to survive, just like Adam. It's the same ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. Shall I be hidden? And I shall be hidden from your face. And you shall be a fugitive, and I, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anybody who finds me will kill me. You know, because there's justice crying out from, from the ground. Now, uh, punishment. He's driven out. The ground's not going to yield any kind of strength, any kind of food. His face is hidden from God. Now, at this point, they were still settled just to the east of Eden. And God was there. He spoke to them. You know, he accepted their sacrifices. Not that God is not omniscient and can be anywhere, or uh, omnipresent and can be anywhere that he wants to be. But with regards to where he fled from and what went, went on with Cain now, no longer can, uh, can he be, see the face of God or have his face seen of God. And uh, so that was his punishment. Also, he was a fugitive, a wanderer, um, no permanent place to live. And so, you know, at this point, we think maybe there's maybe a few sisters, but mostly Cain and Abel, or Abel's now dead. And uh, Cain is hearing this from the Lord. So he's talking about people killing him. Seems to point to the fact that there were more people at this time, but in reality, he's just looking at the fact that the world is going to be populated. Maybe it's possible by now he's had a wife and has some kids, and maybe they've had some kids. I don't know. As time goes by, it looks like 130 years before uh, Seth is born, and that's right after this event. You know, Cain, Cain was, he was a, a wanderer. He was a vagabond. He couldn't grow any food, so he basically had to scrap for what he could. Uh, now, Cain was defiant and, um, at first, but now he's full of fear. Somebody's going to kill me. Too much to bear because he knew he would be killed and he would have capital punishment. And since anybody who found him would kill him before he killed somebody else, 
Um, not only that, just for what he had done to Abel. Everybody knew the story, and as the population grew and the descendants passed those stories on, one to the next, so he knew that, that he would be, um, if he were found out, he would be killed. In verse 15, God is merciful to cover Adam and Eve. And so they did not die that day. Remember, in the day you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Uh, you shall surely die. Well, God was merciful. He covered them. He had to kill an animal in their place. Blood was shed to, for the remission of those sins. But God gave Cain mercy also. He marked him because he should have died. And the first person that saw him should put him to death. But he also was merciful in a way you know, to Cain so that he was not killed right then and there. You know, what was the mark? You know, nobody knows. Was it something on his face, or was it just something about him? Was it just the word went out? If you see Cain, he's a marked man. Um, unknown, but all who would know that they should not take his life wherever he roamed the rest of his life and as the world would populate. So, Towards the end of the chapter, verses 16 through 24, we now have the lineage or the descendants of Cain. And there's a little bit of a story there. Um, You know, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. And now the word Nod means wanderer. So he was wandering in the land of wanderers. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of that uh, after his son Enoch. Now, it doesn't mean he still didn't have to wander. I don't think he, uh, the Lord ever allowed that to take place as the city populated or whatever. You know, he was a mark. He had a mark, even to his own kids. Now, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushel, and Mushel uh, begot Lamech. Now, Lamech is an interesting character. He took for himself two wives. That's actually the first place that's mentioned that there were two wives. Um, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And now Ada bore Jabal. And what it seems from these two wives and their kids is that these tend to be groups of people then that, you know, there are many, many more descendants of Cain prior to the flood uh, through these uh, individual sons that became the people that did certain things. Kind of like, you know, um, when you're looking at Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and as you're going on down through and, and some of the tribes then that were known for what they were doing and how they were set up, and the Lord even did that in, with Israel when they came into the land. He made each, each of them, Levites specifically and, and others, with different things to do. Um, but he took two wives, Ada and Zillah. Ada uh, bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So these were the guys out, you know, probably taking care of the sheep and the livestock. Now, it appears that through this and all through, also through, um, through Abel, who tended sheep, that they, had, they kept livestock. I don't think it makes much sense that it just be for clothing. So it's possible at this point that they were not just eating vegetables anymore. Um, don't know. It doesn't say. But they were making sacrifice. And if that maybe would have been it, the only reason they kept livestock was to have sacrifice. But there's a possibility. And I think there's scriptures that maybe indicate that until after the flood, 
mostly it was vegetables that were eaten, if not entirely. But it's interesting to me that they kept flocks. Um, now, his, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was uh, Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And these were the daughters of Ada. Now, as for Zillah, she bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And his sister was Tubal Cain, was Niyama. Well, so here's Tubal Cain. He's the instructor of, of things that were done with bronze and iron. And so this really goes back to the very first generations of human history just what uh, six or so generations from Adam through Cain, we have you know sectors of society: the farmers, the musicians, and the steelworkers. And um, I think uh, it's possible that uh, you know this was a real civilization growing up around the city of Enoch. And so Lamech said to his wives, or Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. I have killed a man for wounding me. And I've also even killed a young man for hurting me. And he says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The thought of that carrying down through all the way from how many generations, six generations, how many you know, 50s or hundreds of years. Um, and however long Cain lives, it doesn't say. However long Lamech lives, it doesn't say. But here, everybody knew that their great-great-great-grandpa was a marked man. He was a marked man because he took a life. He was a marked man because he had no regard for life. He didn't honor God's word. He didn't love his brother, according to John, First John. And so you go down through these generations and you start to realize that you know, they carried on this thought. Um, Lamech remembers that, that Cain was marked. So when he kills a man and a boy, he makes his own threat to everybody. Hey, you couldn't touch Cain, you know. And if you do, sevenfold on you, if whatever you do to Cain. Well, I, I killed this guy, and it's 77 on me, bragging about it, having this attitude that, you know, he could kill and if Cain can get away with it, so can I. And he's saying that, uh, you know, 11 times over what God promised Cain. You can see how through these generations, more and more, there's no remorse for sin. There's no remorse for murder. Even how by the time it gets to Noah, it says the earth was filled with violence and wickedness. You know, you can see there is nothing in the world for remorse um, I mean, literally, if, if they were to take this for license to kill and, and what, for whatever reason, this was the fruit of Cain's life. This was the fruit, and apparently throughout his lineage. Um, you know, going through this chapter is a you know, labor in the word. We went through and we learned a lot in the first couple chapters. This is a, the third chapter dealing with the beginnings of civilization and we labor in the word we get a look at it we study it and it's kind of like manna you know you need to take it in every day and 
we'll pick up chapter uh, 4, verses 25 and 26, and then all of chapter 5 next week. We only have a few minutes left, so I don't want to really dive into it because there's a few things. But we have here another passage, another example where God shows that he's really only pleased with what Jesus had done on the, on the cross and our faith in that. It takes faith to please God, right? And, you know, it's not works. He accepts our faith in Jesus like he accepted Abel's sacrifice. And he does not accept our works, self-righteous works, that are done in our own strength and our own sweat and our own toil. Um, the way Chuck Smith used to put it, inspiration rather than perspiration. And um, so we have another example of, you know, God's grace for us through faith and that not of ourselves, but by God's grace. So let's pray. Call it a night. And Lord, we do ask for that. We ask that you would would continue to draw our hearts back to you, not through our own works or not through anything we've done on our own, but because we believe in what you've done for us and what you're doing through us. And Lord, we just lift that up to you. We thank you for your word and that you have this story of Cain and Abel. And though there may be many, many more things to glean from it, Lord, we just know that there was one acceptable and one that was not acceptable. And we thank you for what you did on the cross and that we can be acceptable, blameless through Jesus Christ. And so we lift this all up in Jesus' name. Amen.